And we are live with our 37th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter. I'm uh, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, Ken, I just got to say the shirt is... It's rather epic. I like. I was just saying that you know after last week, I wasn't sure if we could up the street cred of your uh, your background and your visage, but apparently we have. This is for Stefan. Yeah, Stefan's all about unicorns. I'm sure, right? I know that. But... Yep, like sparkly unicorns. Me, Lisa, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan is our unicorn. <laughs> yes, yes, he is. Uh, if you didn't notice, uh, today, tonight we're going to be joined by Stefan uh, Logical, Logical on Twitter. Um, uh-huh. And there always are unicorns when Stefan's involved in some form or some fashion. So you're welcome uh, once again. You're, you're uh, sipping on some. Uh, show the people what you're sipping on there, Seth. Oh, it's just it's it's just my little. Uh, yeah, that's that's all I'm sipping on. That's all good. Yeah, you got to show them the brand because I know you got a you got you got a favorite. This is <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it. I'll pull it back out. You you talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not coffee he's drinking tonight, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Stefan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I know you got caught in some nasty traffic out there. So, uh, yes, I, yeah, I actually have a house. I'm not homeless, <laughs> not living out of my car. <laughs> That's sure what it looks like, right? You know, if you're driving down the freeway, I, we have had discussions like when you've done that, but you know, yes, oh, for sure. Or like camping out in my car. Absolutely. Yep. I got some yep. extra space if things go get really bad there, Stefan. So so I, I'm rocking I some High West tonight for those of you that have never been to Utah. There's High West whiskey is good stuff. Um, I've also been sick, so that's that's you know that's my claim to why that's happening. But yeah, you 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 all can deal with it. So <laughs> that's how you. Stefan's on the road. He he's got. Uh, some sort of a, you know, I don't know, weak connection going on. Um, Ken's dressed like a unicorn, um, a Christmas unicorn at that. And, you know, Seth's sick and, you know, trying to self-medicate. So this is going to be a fun night. That's all I got to say, right? <laughs> it's a normal, absolute, absolute shit show. That's how, it, that's how it goes. That Those are the most fun shows. <laughs> Yes, yes, they are. So, for to kick things off for off for our AppSec minute tonight, um, since we are getting to the holiday seasons or the holiday season, whatever you want to call it, uh, I, I thought it would be fun to talk through uh, geek gifts or gifts for your AppSec, uh, you know, friends. Right? I, I know they always do like that. Whatever Twitter get geek uh, by other security people stuff. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk through what you guys thought were good gifts for security people or application security people specifically. So, I, question. yeah, I mean, I mean, like, and then, and we can go from you know your budding you know six year old son to 
you know, your grandmother, uh, you know, there's no, there's no right or wrong answer here. So stuff that you're looking at or stuff you find interesting. Ken, you want to go first? Uh, I keep this. I actually have this on my desk because I keep it on my desk because I have to reference it at least once a month. Um, the Tangled Web, uh, really good book. So I recommend, uh, yeah, I recommend The Tangled Web. I know some people like doing, because you could say like, oh, uh, give someone a gift card for a, for a Kindle or, or something like that, um, I think. And like, I don't know. There, there's just something about tech books that I like having. I like having uh, paper. So any tech, I guess really any tech book is, is uh, well, I shouldn't say any tech book. I should say like for, for, for this, for me, for this year, the books I've referenced most heavily are like this. And then the, uh, uh, go lane, the actually Stefan, it was the book you recommended. The, the, I think it's just the go programming language or something like that. Was it the book you recommended or was it Evan Johnson? Maybe it was Evan. It might've been Evan or we may have lost Stefan. No, I'm here. I, I still see him moving. Yeah, no. So, still at Invisium with you. You and I had gone back and forth on the Golang programming uh, book, uh, the white one. With is that the one you're talking about? Yes, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I had picked that up a, a while ago. I had seen it come out. Um, it was mentioned on Nine Fans, which is like a Plan Nine mailing list because I'm old and nerdy. Um, but. <laughs> But yeah, um, it's a it's a great book. It, it's a great survey of of all the things that were going on in like the base of Go at the time, you know. So yeah, um, it that book worked out. That book worked out well for me. Um, I can't really think of what I mean. Honestly, like uh, some of the other gifts, like are we talking under? I mean, a Burp Suite license costs like several hundred bucks, so. That would be awesome yeah. if you could spend that amount of money. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know like what else I would from a tech standpoint. Like uh, I think one of the things I found the most useful are these actual these Air- AirPods. I, that's I'm glad <laughs> I picked those. Um, uh, and yeah, I can't really think of much else uh, off the top of my head, sadly, since I didn't prepare at all for this uh, question. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I had no, I, I mean, I didn't give anybody any prep time. It was just something that was, came across my mind. What about you, Stefan? What, what are you looking at? Um, probably the, the type driven development with Idris book, because, um, to see all the new development that they're doing there in Idris and in languages like F star and F sharp. Um, so that's an interesting book. Uh, especially for the space that I work in, which is like program analysis and formal verification and things like that, um, or applying those things to application security. Um, so that's something I'd like to see passed around. We, we've been talking about it at work. I think there's quite a few people who are interested in it. So it's a it's an interesting, interesting book. I can paste it in chat for you, Ken, so you can dump it out there. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Definitely I mean, that's... Do. There you go. I just added it there in our Oh, you did it now. Um, that was quick. Yeah. <laughs> you know me. I always have uh, like Google running and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting book. I think it's an interesting language going on there with some things like that. So um, that'll be the thing that I'm looking at this like over the Christmas break for myself. So 
I also have the uh, the F star tutorials uh, as well. So I actually printed that I prefer paper copies of things. So I bought a giant dumped out the entire F star tutorials. So I'll be working through that over Christmas as well. Okay. Anything besides books? Um, for like our, our types of folks, like people who work in AppSec, mm, I don't know. I mean, obviously the, the sorts of like larger, more expansive tools that you could get, uh, you know, lockpicks and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, no, mostly books. I want to pass stuff. Yeah, you know, the thing that stinks in here in Virginia, besides the fact that I'm in Virginia, is uh, the um, laws around lockpicks. Um, uh, I think it's illegal if without a locksmith license to actually own lockpicks. So, well, not that I... It's actually, it, it's super interesting because certain states consider it, um, so it's not a crime to own them, but if you are committing a crime or you are accused of a crime, it's considered like an accessory or a step up in the, in the, in the criminal code for that state. Ooh, so that add, that worsens whatever you're. Crying. Yeah, and you can actually you can actually read up on it. Like Tool has a really good mm -hmm. like breakdown of what's legal in your state, right? Uh, so in the in the commission of a crime in some states, and I think Virginia is one of those. It actually bumps your like misdemeanor one or two, uh, you know, severity levels, something along those lines, right? Like. Uh, but it may also be just illegal to have them. Uh, so it, it just kind of depends state to state what the what the laws actually are. Um, you know, I, I say that Utah's fairly liberal. Obviously, we're out west, so you know, guns and everything else is just like go ahead. Yeah. Um, so you know, like I I have a I have pictures of my you know five six year old actually picking the trainer locks because it was like why not I've got these around and it's a fun thing to do and that's what we do and we sit around you know you know chilling or whatever right so um I, I mean you know I always love books right you know if we we swing around to the stuff that I was looking at um, actually one thing I love about the Christmas time and you know especially this you know Black Friday Friday Cyber Monday is my Shodan license every year right yeah. <laughs> So if you don't know about Shodan, right, that's the, the, the whole scanning engine. They store all the data from the different uh, sites that they scan. Uh, typically, a license is about 50 bucks a year. Every year at Christmas time or at, you know, around uh, this time of year, they, they, they discount it to five bucks, right? So if you don't have a Shodan license, this is the time of year to actually go and apply for one or go, you know, sign up for one because it is inexpensive. And then you can start exploring people's webcams that they put online and, you know, the, their database of data. Uh, that's always fun. Um, Speaking of that, I do want to throw it out that Nest thermostats, this is not oh. an AppSec thing, but since you mentioned like cameras, maybe think of Nest, I, Nest thermostats are going, are going to have like a massive sale on Friday. And let me tell you, as somebody who can feel even a half of a degree difference and like runs to the thermostat, it's amazing. It's well worth buying. I know it's not an AppSec thing, man, but that next thermostat is amazing. Okay. So I've got a story about, well, I, so I like, I sold a house. I sold my house, right? You know, I, you know, but I didn't, like, this was a couple of years ago. 
I actually forgot to give them like the like to unlike subscribe the nest when I first moved. And it was one of my favorite things. It took it took them like two months to actually figure out that I was screwing with their temperature. Um, because it was still tied to my account. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm a jerk. Yes, I'm a jerk. It was only a couple degrees either way, but I just I wanted to see how long it would take oh, them before that's they enough actually to throw come. me into a fit. Two degrees and just be like, ooh, yeah, we get under my skin. You know, I'd set them to a way and all of a sudden, you know, the air conditioner would kick off. And yeah, anyway. Um, but like when I moved to the new house, I was like, oh, I'm going to try out some of the other ones. And I haven't found anything as good as the Nest. So like that's a good recommendation as far as like uh, the predictive and actually like identifying, you know, knowing that people are walking past it and all that stuff, like the auto away functions and things like that. Oh, my gosh. It's so nice. I get out of bed now. And uh, it's just the right temperature when I get out of bed, and it's amazing. Just the right, just before I get up, it warms up, and my my tootsies don't have to hit the cold floor. It's very nice. <laughs> so, so what else are you guys getting? I mean, like you know, Ken, like I'm always interested in you know stuff that you're buying for the rest of the family as well. Um, cause I always, I, I mean, you know, the first thing that I do when a new smart TV pops on the network is I scan the thing. Right. And I'm actually like playing with the software. I'm like, Oh, look, there's an, there's an SDK for it. And so I'm installing the developer kit and throwing some app on there so I can fuzz it. Right. You know, but you know, what else are you guys buying for your kids or for others that may be interesting for us to look at? I actually do have something. And I, Stefan, I know we've got you sitting here, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. I bought, uh, I bought Minecraft for myself. Well, myself and my son. Um, and I, you know, I got him a computer cause he's at the age now where he's doing computer stuff and whatever. So, uh, we, so we're going to do, we did Minecraft. And, uh, the first thing we did, obviously the, the whole reason was we wanted to do mods and whatnot. Cause you can't do it or I'm sure you could, but I don't want to chance messing up the Nintendo switch or an Xbox. So, computer was safe. So we started doing mods. Uh, and you know, then I started looking into recently the, uh, the actual, uh, development, uh, APIs for, um, um, what is it? Curse, curse forge, Minecraft curse forge or Minecraft forge. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think over this holiday weekend, I'm actually going to start, uh, building some Minecraft modifications, just getting into it. It made me think though, like Stefan, I know you've done some Minecraft. Like, uh, have you ever gone through the process of downloading mods and installing those and whatnot? Yeah, in fact, they're an, a terrible avenue for kids because uh, my son has managed to mess up his Windows Ten. Like, uh, he has a Windows Ten machine at his, at his mom's house, and he has a a older Mac at my house. And I have gotten his Windows Ten back from his mom so many times because he installed something or he asked her to install something and it was just like a search bar or bho or any of those sorts of things and it's it's bad um even with the mod installers like forge kit and all that stuff it's it's not trivial for kids to select a good one so it's frustrating it, it you would think that they would have solved this for kids since it's such a younger audience that trying to install this sort of stuff you know no, I agree. I seriously, I, that's why I asked you because it's super sketchy. I'm like the whole time. I'm like, all right, I want to learn the API so I can figure out what damage can you know be done. I mean, you're downloading a jar, 
you know, and, right. and, and it has to be in Java eight for most of them to, for anything to really work instead of uh, Java yep. nine. So like, it's, it's just super sketchy, but, uh, like it's well, still it, fun, I mean, so. it, it is owned by your parent company now, Ken, right? So you should be able to like make some changes there, right? Just calling me out. Just calling me out, aren't you? <laughs> just, just put me on. I'm, I'm just not letting anything buy that, right? You know. <laughs> I knew you I knew I knew somebody was gonna bring it up. Yeah, no. So yeah, Microsoft owns Minecraft. Uh clearly. But you're right. Like, I don't understand because the 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 especially because the mine forge or whatever it is. That's like the most popular one. And you're right. Like the, the Avenue, they do have a website, but even like, even that links to like things that are just, I mean, they're like, Oh, I disable this and run this. And you know, Hey, we, we noticed you, we make all of our money off of running random ass JavaScript on your browser. Just allow us to, you know, like, yeah, it's not, it's very easy to screw that up. You're right. Oh yeah. It's, it's been bad. I'll say this though. Um, uh, LuaCraft is quite is quite pleasant to work with. Oh, is that like the? You uh, are you talking about the? Is it a Lua like pl plugin to to convert to uh, to make mods? Yeah, so it's a um, it's a uh, Lua for Minecraft. So you can you can code and do some do some work in LuaCraft. It's uh, in Lua itself within Minecraft. So, so it's got a Lua interpreter um, built into it. Is that? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for like, again, this is one of those things though, where you go looking for uh, like, you go looking for the, the mod and it is not like super fun or super easy to find a, a, you know, the actual location of this thing. That's not goddamn shady, but like the <laughs> yeah. Lua craft website is an nginx welcome page. <laughs> like not super not super helpful right now <laughs> oh yeah I, I no. there's so many of these like subcultures that are this way though right like I, I mean you think about the minecraft modding community you think about um like roms like the whole uh you know xarcade's whole business model is built on the fact that you go and just download roms from 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 some random place and run them on your hardware and like you go to those sites as well and they're all super sketch because copyright issues in the u.s so they're all hosted some other place in russia or what you know but it's the, it's very similar right is it's like how far do you trust this stuff and it seems like a great avenue to actually exploit people right uh, from a social engineering perspective or a you know however else you would like to do it you know come up with a popular mod for minecraft put it out there and then you know it's on half of these computers because dad lets their six-year-old actually run minecraft on the company you know the home computer and you're in their network period that sounds pretty familiar that scenario you just described seth um guys i'll be yeah. right back <laughs> wait <laughs> gotta run some you errands don't, you don't you don't like separate out your it's like so i have an internet of things network and then i have a, a kids network yeah and then i have like me <laughs> wait so yeah. one thing i want to clarify is which i didn't realize maybe this is what you meant there's a version here where you can actually put a computer in the minecraft game itself and then run lua code inside of that computer is yeah, that what you meant exactly 
Oh, Jesus. That's awesome. Yeah. I thought you meant like write mods in Lua and then just convert it to Java, not like put a computer inside of the Minecraft game that can. That's cool. That's really cool. Literally run a quote unquote computer in there. Uh, there's programmable blocks and things like that for Minecraft. There's there's a lot of really interesting mods out there. So, yeah. I mean, uh, the problem is, again, just actually finding a decent one that's not like installing a bunch of shitware on your machine, you know? Yeah. I know. It's what scares me the most for sure. So, you have Curseful. If you, you already have Curseful, you actually can install programmable command blocks. Yeah, no, I've done the command block. Uh, I've yeah, I've actually done a command block, but it, it wasn't it wasn't like a, um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's just a, like to spawn a sp special kind of zombie or whatever. But yeah, you can do the uh, the give now. See, now we're going down this whole Minecraft thing. This is how how much I know about it. You do like forward slash give command underscore block, then you use it, then you can program into it. Yeah, like I've gone pretty <laughs> deep and and far it down into the Minecraft craft rabbit hole at this point but you know I'm so uh, join it join us next week when we rebrand to absolute minecraft instead of absolute <laughs> appsec <laughs> well when you have some spare time and you want to bond with your son that's maybe what you do so yep <clears throat> oh i'm not i actually that's just funny. posted they have a they have a logo interpreter for minecraft itself so i, I just posted that in there so you can like you can remember the old turtle robots from like the eighties and down uh, forward, left, right. Seth would remember he's about a, um, what are you? 84 <laughs> years old. I think you would remember. Yeah. That. Close, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just, I just posted that in there. It's a, it's a set of like programmable blocks for, for Minecraft for kids. My son has done quite a bit of logo um, and it's it's fun. He likes drawing with it a lot uh, and figuring out the different sets of commands to draw things or into scratch. Um, I don't think there's a scratch for my great, uh, you know, a great combination right there. Yeah. Apparently someone made Minecraft in scratch, which is not surprising to me since the scratch community is insane, but yeah, I don't know anything about scratch. You... It's a visual programming language for kids. Yeah. Actually I've had my kids do a whole bunch in scratch, right? It's, it's pretty interesting from a learning perspective. Ooh. Okay. I'll post a link. This looks pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, when we start talking about kids and actually introducing them to programming concepts, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff that's out there. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people like like us that actually have their kids and are doing a whole bunch of development in these different in these different languages uh, that are available. I mean, uh, I, like I spent a lot of time playing with uh, Code Combat. Have you guys played with that at all? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That one's that one's super fun, right? Because you're like programming a like little RPG game and character and having it do different things, and uh, yeah, it, I mean it's interesting. It'd be JavaScript or Python, the, the, as far as the language constructs go. But it's very it's very addictive, uh, even for you know somebody like us that's just getting into programming concepts. So. I used to play Core Wars 
Olympics when I was in like late middle school, early high school, which is core wars, huh? Core wars, yeah. Uh, it's a it's basically a game where you program, uh, you write programs to try to wipe out the competitors' program in memory. <laughs> so I just posted the link. Oh wow! I'm looking yeah, at it right it, now. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And it was, it's neat because it's visual. Like you can actually see the, the program executing and, and taking over memory and stuff like that, you know? So. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I started down this road with the Minecraft computer and doing mods and stuff. Cause I was like, kind of needed a way to like <clears throat> teach him programming in like a, a way that would appeal. Cause like, let's be honest. I don't know how you guys learn pro programming, but I'm guessing it's the same as myself where like I actually had to do something. And that was when I really like programming knowledge kind of exploded was because I like had to start picking up a bunch of books, figuring out like how to actually build whatever, you know, whatever it was that I wanted to build. I think it was network related stuff. And uh, I don't know if it was, I, I would assume it's probably similar for you guys, but I don't, I, you know, you tell me. Uh, I learned when I was eight. He, so he doesn't remember. I, so that was like, what, like two years ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, when my stepfather was taking a class in university on on programming and i remember how furious he was because i did all of his homework in one sitting like all the like draw a triangle and like you know make a noise and all this sort of stuff and i thought it was amazing and i did all of his homework in one sitting and he was like you motherfucker like <laughs> he hated programming he wanted to, nothing to do with it and this like little eight-year-old kid just came in and finished all of his homework so which i think is a good segue into your background i think we've, <laughs> yes. i think we've realized where it may have started for you we've so had you on the show half hour right is that what it became was that yeah. was a minute we don't like labels man we don't like categories yeah i mean you've been on the show a couple times now a few times maybe even um I think three times yeah. already, but we've never really went into your background. And I think this is the proper time to delve more into your background, <laughs> Stefan. So <laughs> was your dad calling you a motherfucker in your own words? The impetus for launching oh, his career? <laughs> now I have to, My now I have to mark this episode explicit. Damn it, Ken. <laughs> is there some, is there a certain amount of motherfuckers that you have to say in order to make it explicit oh it's it, it, it it's up to me like when i'm building the rss.xml file so yes you have, you have sufficiently hit the quota all right yes uh, target achieved yeah no uh, so my grandfather my grandfather was a uh like he worked at at&t and he was around for unix uh coming out and like he saw uh, like, you know, dumb terminals hitting desks and he saw people starting to use computers and he didn't understand what he was seeing, but he had seen uh, telephone networks go from like, you know, uh, like mechanic mechanical switching to ESS to SS7 or like before SS7, but right around that sort of thing. He, he started with Crossbar 5 and he saw how telephone networks were improving and he just realized that computers were the future and if I was, if he was going to do whatever was necessary for me to like cont continue that. So when I was 10, he 
Borland C from uh, Comp USA. <laughs> oh, I loved Borland C. Uh, yeah, I want to go back to those days. Let's go back. Never mind. Go ahead. Sorry. You can. Oh, I know you, you can. can right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I he bought me a copy of Borland C, and I just I started programming there and. Someone at the church I was going to at the time was like, Windows is really bad for C. What you should be using is this thing. And he gave me like a stack of like 40 floppies. And he's like, it's called Linux. It's awesome. Um, you just install it, follow the floppies by number, and uh, you'll just be fine. Just 40 easy steps. <laughs> yeah. Just 40 easy disks that you put in a row to install this super easy to install operating system. It was not easy. Uh, like for the first two months, I could not boot off the hard drive. Like I just booted off of floppies because I couldn't. <laughs> so, so it took you two out. months to actually install it. Is that what you're saying? So no, I. So it was I, Gen two then. That's it. what you're saying. It was Gen two. Yeah, no, it was it was Slackware like two five. Um, nice. I was going to ask what version it was, but okay, good. All right, keep going. <laughs> It was Slackware 2.5, and uh, no, I installed it onto my hard drive, but I couldn't figure out how to set the bootable flag. So for like two months, I actually had it, and then I realized that you could just set the, the hard drive flag to be bootable, and like my life changed forever. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's basically where everything went downhill, is realizing <laughs> that I could boot from the hard drive itself. And yeah. now we're here, right? You know, so basically, yeah. you just take that. Yeah. Yeah. You, mentioned, you, just, you just follow a downward trajectory. Seth, you mentioned Gen 2. That, that was like, that was exactly the scenario that I went through with that distrib distribution in probably like 2004. Just take, just like, yeah, just putting the disks in and like, how do I even get this installed to a disk, to a hard drive rather than booting off this disk? But it's pristine, Ken, right? Because you build it yourself, it's better. And you can you can say that you have installed and run Gentoo as opposed, which basically means you sit around waiting for a lot of things to compile while everybody else actually does work, right? Let's, let's be honest. That's, that's what it boils down to. Waiting for well, compilation is work? I mean, for a long time, I actually traced uh, NetBSD alpha head so I actually was one of the testers for NetBSD on alpha. Um, so I was like constantly downloading CD images and ripping them out and then reinstalling them on a, on a deck alpha personal workstation and making sure that they built and everything was fine and recompiling kernels and all that crap. And, and then I realized I wanted to do other things other than like sit around and compile shit all day. So, you know, I switched to something useful. <laughs> I think that happens to all of us at one point, right? You know, it was finally yeah. like, ah, crap. Okay, we're going to move to Fedora Core because I can't spend, you know, two of my five days at work every week just to recompile the latest updates for Gen 2. I will say this. One of the worst outages I've ever experienced was SUSE Linux Open Exchange updating itself overnight once. And uh, it, like... I forget exactly what the issue was, but it like it it tried to jump to a new kernel and could not, and uh, we hosed like an entire an entire farm of mail servers for clients. It was like four hundred and fifty servers that we had to manually roll over, and 
I learned the wrong lesson, which was to never trust automatic updates. So for like years, I didn't automatically update anything because it was horrible and that uh, was just painful. But yeah, uh, now it's a, uh, those are old. We're all old. <laughs> no one yeah. on this podcast is young. <laughs> yeah, but I'm younger than Seth. So <laughs> that's all that matters. <laughs> Actually, but older than me. Jokes, well, jokes aside, I, what was it? Uh, today's Tuesday. Well, that's, that's a sign. Yeah, so yesterday uh, I went and got a haircut and uh, I'm sitting there waiting for, you know, well, she's doing the haircut and uh, the hair, com hair comes down on my, on the thing, the smock. And I was like, whose hair is that? For real. Like I thought it was somebody else's <laughs> hair. And then I was like looking at it and I, I pick it up, you know, and there's a lot, cause it's like half of it's white. And, and I, and I go to her and I look, you know, I look up like this, is this me? Do I have white hair now? She's like, yeah, on the sides here, you got white hair. I was, I was, that was, it, that was a bummer. It's, it's all downhill from here, Ken. <laughs> yep. Well, if, if you're any uh, indication, I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, wow, <laughs> boys. <laughs> oh, wow, that was quite the burn. I love Seth. It's all in, it's all in fun. What? Wow. What? <laughs> Speaking in my good ear. Oh. <laughs> we still love you, Grandpa. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I already took crap on that on Twitter from Kevin. Was it Kevin? Yeah, it was Kevin on Twitter about being the InfoSec dad. <laughs> DEFCON. Well, you've already got the whiskey going for two days in advance of Thanksgiving. I'm sick. So, yeah. We know you are, Seth. We know. It's a disease. Yeah. All right. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Wow. Man. <laughs> I didn't realize. I would have canceled had I known this was where it was going to go. You're lining today. them up. What can I do? You just put place those jokes right there. I mean, I, I we did. Would've, I did. We still made fun of you anyway. You just wouldn't have been here to defend yourself. <laughs> I'm not doing a very good job. I blame the whiskey. That's what I blame. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay, so so for your background, Stefan, like we're gonna, I, I'm gonna change <laughs> change the direction of the <laughs> conversation. <laughs> we we have you as an eight year old installing Slackware, and then I was ten. What? Okay, okay, oh, ten, right? You know, like I said, okay, so two years ago, two months ago, whatever that was. Um, so you're installing Slackware and then, you know, obviously you've done a lot of study or self-study or whatever it is, but tell us a little bit about where it went from there, right? You know, uh, you showed some impetus, you wanted to get into this, then what? So I ran Slackware for a couple months. I switched to, they had FreeBSD. Do you remember Wind River used to sell FreeBSD collections? I do. I, yes, I, I yeah, am so old, I, and you know, FreeBSD was one of the first ones that I used. I loved FreeBSD. Man, stop admitting to using this stuff. Like, no, nope, <laughs> I never heard of it. <laughs> no, <Nope>. FreeBSD <laughs> is that like Windows Seven? No, <laughs> never heard of it. So I used FreeBSD for a while. Um, I switched to NetBSD because I started to get into machines like the Deck Alpha Sun. Um, SGI, things like that. I was, so I was more curious about uh, an operating system I could port across all those architectures because I I used to collect old machines. So at my height, I had 127 different machines across DEC, MIPS, like well, DEC RISC, Alpha, uh, DEC MIPS, uh, Sun, 
Sun Spark, Sun Ultra Spark, uh, all the various like I had a couple of Vaxes, I had one PDP. It was pretty pretty insane. Um, but I wanted to run something something that I could run across those. I finally got into OpenBSD and I ran that for for years. I only recently switched to Alpine actually um, because I started running into like you're you're going to a hosting provider and you're trying to install OpenBSD and configure everything or or you need uh, SMT or any of those sorts of things. So um, that's how old I am. I still call it SMT. But uh, yeah, so it was just easier to run on Alpine, which was small and hardened and ran had packs and GRSec and everything already pre-configured and, and set up uh, versus OpenBSD, where I was like tinkering. Maybe it would work. Maybe it wouldn't. So you know, come on, the yeah. Theo made sure everything ran on OpenBSD like a you know perfect, right? If you had an, uh, a VME 88K, it was perfect to run OpenBSD on it. Uh, if you don't know what I just said, then no, it's probably not perfect for you. Um, and for a while, I was actually running my own operating system. Um, like, I, I was really into... Do you remember Menuet? I do. <laughs> no, wait, no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> I don't remember what that is. Nope. So Menuet it was a, a single floppy operating system written in a uh, 32-bit assembler. So it's like a, it's a graphical operating system. Uh, you, you used to be able to be, and it had a, a simple GUI. Uh, and there was a bunch of like, dem you know, demonstrative unices and things like that. So I was very curious about those, and I, I ran my own for maybe like I don't know five or six months. Uh, I booted off of my own operating system, from, uh, just like trying to futz around with things. And then I got frustrated because I couldn't like, you know, I didn't, I, I got stuck with certain things and I decided to move on and go back to actual, like using a computer instead of fighting with one continuously. So, but it was right around, right around then that I started, like, instead of focusing on kernels, I started focusing on languages. So, and I had, I had followed uh, Crenshaw's book uh, let's build a compiler when I was 13 because I couldn't get a Pascal compiler at the time. So I, I'm not Batman. It's just my car keeps going off. Um, <laughs> so um, I followed Crenshaw's book to like build a compiler. I had some friends who were a little older who knew. Um, and I, I just started playing around with compilers and things and languages and really getting interested in all the various languages and the history of languages and that sort of stuff. Um, and, and, that was really my descent into madness and, and what led me to where I am today. So playing with, yeah, I mean, you still, you still, I mean, you built, uh, you built, uh, <clears throat> you built two languages, right? At least two. Uh, no. So I'm on, I'm on my 37th language, believe it or not. Oh, right. But I meant like, Currently like actual usable languages, right? Let's <laughs> yeah, uh, like actual usable languages. Like th I'm at 37. Hang on, I'll send you. I have an, uh, a list that's not up to date at all, but I'll send that to you. That is a lot of different languages. Yeah, so four have actually been used in production, which is really scary to me. Oh, four. That's okay. See, I was thinking it was two that were currently, in, yeah, yeah, like used by in, in a production scenario, basically. Yes. I, I just sent you a totally out of date, but. Okay. I'm a uh, tiny languages. Oh, wow. This is a good list. Okay. I'm pasting yeah, this, this is, in. For this everyone. is old. But 
this is when I was much more interested in like imperative languages and things like that. So. And we're both. And then I've open sourced a few. Uh, yeah. Digamma, Digamma, and Carmel are both like at both completely open source. You can view them on GitHub right now. So. Have you seen much? Uh, like, you know, when you've open sourced any of these or if you've introduced them to people, have you seen any, like, like which are the ones that kind of got picked up that were actually used in a production sense? Uh, so Digamma for a very long time, I actually, so the reason why I wrote Digamma was that at when I was consulting, I actually used to do a lot of my consulting in Scheme. Uh -huh. So if the, if the customer did not have a, a preference language, like they didn't come to me and say, we need it in Java or we need it in C, I would actually write it in Scheme. Um, but if, if you're familiar with scheme, you many different types of schemes that are out there. Like you might have SDK LOS for, uh, like doing graphical stuff or, or Gauche for doing like textual stuff or uh, scheme 48 for doing like servers and things like this. And it got really annoying to write that many different, like every single scheme is just slightly different than the other ones. There's nothing that's really. Uh, usable across all of them, like anything that actually gets practical work done uh, is not usable across multiple schemes systems. So this is a site my own, and that's where Digamma came from. So Digamma was used there. TTTL, uh, which is an awk, which is an awk-like language. Um, that was the first language ever used in production. It's really super horrifying, but it's, it's a domain-specific language for uh, pulling reports from textual files. So there was a customer that uh, they needed something very simple, but they could not allow full execution of anything. And so I was like, this is simple. I know all this compiler stuff. And I was like, you know, 18 and like young, dumb, and all full of stuff. So I decided to like, I just hacked out a language and stuck it in production. And <laughs> we had all sorts of horrible problems with it. <laughs> but you know, when you're young and you, you don't really think about the, the uh, like implications of, of launching a programming language into production that like, you know, I think at the height, like 50 different people were using it at once. Um, you know, it was pretty horrifying to think like now thinking back, it's horrifying if people had access to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's weird. It's very, it's very strange. I'm looking at some of these that you have and it cracks me up. Cause it's like, it's like, um, uh, it says, uh, first of all, Draca and Algo 68 ish dialect of Draco. No clue what that is, but then you've got skink, which is a tiny Draca dialect meant to get bootstrapped off the ground. So you've got a tiny version of Draca, which is, what is this? An Algo 68-ish version of Draco. Uh, uh -huh. None of this makes any sense to me, but you're smart. Draco, <laughs> Draco is an Algol dialect for, for the Amiga. Right. So you, uh, I mean, as, you, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> Do you know what the Amiga is, right? <laughs> It looks like a Compi 386 from uh, from <laughs> it is Strong a Bad. 386. <laughs> it is a Compi 386. That's literally what it's from. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, do you remember? Oh, the, the Amiga was awesome. 
right? That was that was cutting edge multimedia. I gotta find an image of this so that I can just save the image. I just want to give the image there. I can put it in chat. But like so. Go. So Draca was, I was super interested in Algol dialects because Algol, uh, I know they're not super common nowadays, but Algol for a very long time was like the language standard that you tried to compare your language to. Um, standard ML is probably the only language that I know of. Um, stan so Standard ML, Common Lisp, and Algol 68 are probably the language standards that you aim for. Uh, IS Lisp is up there as well. But basically, I wanted something similar to Algol 68 because Algol 68 is very powerful, has a lot of features, but it was very difficult to write and bootstrap an Algol 68 compiler at the time. So I wrote a small compiler for the language, uh, like a, for a small language that was a subset of 3GL68 dialect, but it could do most of the things enough that I could get a compiler off the ground. Does that make sense, Ken? It does, which begs the question, if you have all of this experience with building compilers, which, so building building compilers, building languages, um, clearly working with just about every tech that's out there, <laughs> why did you choose security? I mean, I, and I say that, not, not that like, if you're like, you know, really hardcore into that stuff, you can't do security, but, there are plenty of other jobs that you could have taken in technology where those skills would be applicable. That's that's what I'm trying to say is what was unique about security to you that made you want to, that drew you to it? Uh, money. Uh, money was very good. <laughs> well, that's brutally <laughs> honest. <laughs> I mean, I so I actually dropped out of college. Um, my, you know, it's a, home but my my basically my parents did not like my uh soon-to-be wife at the time uh now my ex-wife they didn't like her i dropped out of school um i was making enough money so what's the point of continuing the problem is a lot of the areas at least very young the areas that you want to go into compilers are companies like Grammatech. Um, are companies in the defense contracting space or in government space, things like that. Uh, and they're looking for like PhD students and, and college dropout who just happens to do a lot of like compilers and logic and, and stuff like that. I just find it interesting. Um, I have some like formal background in it, but it's mostly autodidactic. So, you know, before Trail of Bits, it was very difficult to find a place that was like, you know, oh, you know all this stuff and you don't have a PhD, that's cool. You can just come do that sort of stuff over here um, or work on that sort of stuff here. But to your original question, Ken, why security? Other than money, um, and money is like 99% of it, but other than money, um, I do really enjoy the process of securing something. I really enjoy working with a customer and taking something and attempting to codify their intent and protects their user base, but also protects them. And language, like designing languages or talking about languages, talking about design languages, it's a user experience thing. It's something that you can really sit down and you can say, oh, your API is a language. Your API has these problems. We can make it smooth. 
smoother in things here, uh, make it easier to transform, whatever the issue is. And I, I really enjoy that sort of process. I don't enjoy security for like breaking shit. I enjoy security for securing things. I enjoy security for making things better. Um, as idealistic as that sounds, that's why I temper it with I mostly do this for money, but it's also very fun to make things better in the world and make, you know, a little bit more secure for folks. So like, um, let me first, there's two points to that or two questions. Uh, so first is because I've got asked by a couple people, if you didn't start at the beginning of the show, Stefan got stuck in traffic. And so he was kind enough to keep the show going and is parked in a rest area. Uh, is that people asking why it's so dark? (laughs) They, well, they're asking if you're like on a physical pen test, um, a couple other questions. Uh, I don't really remember what they were, but they were jokes. Um, but yeah, no, they were, they were you know, just your standard security. Yeah. 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 So, um yeah. no so he's he's just he's being a trooper and sticking it out of the rest area the second piece of that is it's funny because like i think you're mo- maybe you're not joking about the money aspect because it but if you if you are serious what's funny is usually what i tell people is like don't do this for the money because that's not going to get you through when you've got to re- spend you know eight day, hours a day day after day reviewing someone else's code instead of building your own which i find to be yeah, a bit tedious, but uh, even though I enjoy it, there are certainly times where you can enjoy your work, but it gets tedious after a while. Um, and so I always tell people like, you definitely should enjoy this. Like, otherwise, if you do it just purely for the money, like it's not going to get you through uh, some of those, unless you're just, I guess, a special Stefan. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that is what I'm trying to say. And a not succinct, ah, I mean- succinct manner. I mean, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always cynical and negative. Like, honestly, it is real. You get all of the engineering challenges of being a developer without having to clean up your Legos. And there's not the same sort of, de- like, there's, there's different le- deadlines and there's different Legos to be cleaned up, but they're not the same problems that you have as a developer. Right. Does that make sense? There are different problems. I mean, <clears throat> I will say that, uh, like, um, yes, you don't have to, because some of the headaches that you deal with are like, you know, just things won't work, right? Like things won't, when you're a developer, you've got like different, con- you've got different constraints. You've got time constraints. You've got, you know, how many people are working on the project, what features matter most, and you've got to battle that, and you've got to battle technical issues and security. Like we've definitely got a little, um, uh, we definitely have like, I mean, for instance, I have to get applications installed. So I still have, to, still have to deal with like troubleshooting things and things not working and me not understanding why and then working through that. But uh, our challenges, I feel like now, I don't know about you, but my challenge now, especially because I work for like it, as a consultant, when you give a recommendation, you can, you can pretty, I mean, you want to do a good job, but your, your recommendations are going to be what they are. Whereas within inside of a company, like recommendations, I think that's a challenge because you want to get them right because they, they, well, for one, they have to be done right. And secondly, you actually want them to not be totally miserable implementing those recommendations and for it to make sense. And uh, it's just really super important that your recommendations uh, are right. So that means you have to test your theories and you have to actually put what you're recommending, recommending under, you know, 
you got to do it like locally in your dev environment. Do you enjoy that aspect at all of like uh, actually putting the recommendations that you're giving people like into practice before you know obviously get handing them off? Did we lose Stefan? Yeah, I think the thing that makes Trail Bits unique uh, and more interesting to me is that we're doing a lot of uh, like so I I still do the same like architectural assessments I do uh, you know I do assurance work uh, like code review manual testing but we also get uh, into more funky styles of testing like we we'll we have a, a fuzzer that we an in-house fuzzer a property tester that we use. Uh, we have a symbolic executor that we use. I've written a symbolic executor for clients. Um, and really, really, the the level to which we are able to go, we're looking more controls, but we're looking at correctness itself, which I, I find super interesting. The other thing that I really enjoy here is that um, Dan has tasked us with our assessments that if you are working on, like if you if I'm given a client and they come in and you know, they, uh, you know, they had some anemic. Uh, one of the things that Dan has, has tasked us to do is write new tests for the client, make their software better, provide them with more, like provide them with more code, make their, like actually give them test cases for these sorts of security issues. And it's, it's interesting to see the additional tooling that we can bring to bear as well as the test cases that we can write or generate or those sorts of things for clients. So. I do, yeah, I do absolutely enjoy seeing things get better, and I enjoy, uh, I enjoy making things better for those clients directly. Like actually implementing things is fun and good. I was, I, I was actually thinking about that earlier I, this week, right? The last couple of days was the like we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago when you popped on last minute about security testing, right? Um, but you know, from a unit testing perspective, as as consultants, I've always wondered why we don't do more of that, right? Like we're already implementing or we're already saying, hey, look, here is like we're running test cases against this application. If we were to codify that, it seems like that would be a natural progression. And hey, you know, we want to make sure that your application is never, never vulnerable to cross-site scripting. So instead of just walking in once a year, you know, if the, if the org is willing to do it, right, they're already giving you test cases, they're already giving you code to review, why don't you actually just add to that list for them to actually use? I, I mean, I'm glad to hear that somebody is going that direction because it is, I, I mean, it's a place that we should be at, but I don't see a lot of that in the industry as it is. I mean, can like internal to GitHub, is that something that you guys are mandated with? from a, hey, you assess this, are you building out tooling? Or are you building out test cases in, in your org? Yeah, so it's actually, um, well, we have tooling for sure, but actually our tooling capabilities like, uh, you know, are kind of in the, in the, at the moment expanding um, past what they currently are. Uh, it's funny you bring this up, it's very timely because um, we, as of this week, we started kind of putting together some, I mean, when I say we, like I specifically, uh, have been doing this, but I know that, um, but it's not just me. I'm just saying like, I, it's one of my things that I've been working on this week is putting together, like, um, what can we do in terms of, um, like unit tests? Like, like what are some 
what are what are the like the minimum minimum sort of mandatory authorization style unit test cases that we can um, oh. sort of implement? You know, so that's been and and then and then the tooling aspect and the other pieces, um, you know, formalizing more of like um, what constitutes a uh, obviously a new application um, and in some cases new features require reviews for sure. Uh, but then there's like these edge cases that are like they fall into a bucket of, ah, and then we got to figure that out. So yeah, that's actually in process as we speak, or well, cool. I guess not as we speak, but th this, this month, this week. No, I, I, you know, so to go back to Stefan's point, like that, like I've never been asked to do that. Right. As, as a consultant coming into yeah. an organization, right? I, like I've had discussions with QA in the past, right? When I've been embedded in an organization like Ken is right now about actually how to do that, providing them with fuzz lists and other things like that, the whole sputter idea. Um, but it's never really been a, you know, something that's been asked for or something that's been needed. I mean, what's your reception been from the client on that? Have they actually used those tests in this case? Um, so I've seen them applied. So like I have a, I have a colleague, JP, he wrote a Kidna. Um, I have some colleagues who work on, and I think it's pretty wide that clients will actually adopt or the, they're actually property checks. Um, but you know, if, if JP hacks at some Echidna, like JP at Trail of Bits, not JP at Invisium, uh, if JP hacks at some, some Echidna tests uh, or some echidna properties or if uh, another colleague of mine uh, writes something for manticore uh, those sorts of things like they actually are delivered to clients and, and clients very often integrate them into their their cicd pipeline so it's it's not uncommon for us like i i had a client with a custom uh, a custom blockchain custom virtual machine and had no formal analysis tooling so we whipped up some symbolic execution framework for them to start formalizing their testing and seeing all of the paths that an application can take and start to like generate concrete inputs for think to break things for themselves. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good kind of like introduction to what trail of bits does and what they provide over kind of the, you know, the regular, I guess, AppSec consulting that's out there, right? You guys definitely go deeper. Um, and it does speak to the level of trust that your clients have with you. Uh, you know, most of the time, if I can get them to actually just fix all the cross-site scripting issues that I find, I'm doing well, right? Um, and it, you know, it, it might just be the orgs that you're dealing with, how mature they are, and other things along those lines. Um, but it, it, you know, it is kind of an interesting, you know, take on the industry as a whole, as far as what is actually being provided and what value exists from the consulting realm to the, to the development orgs. I'd, I know we tried. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I, you know, if you, if you look at the continuum of, of like consultancies uh, as to what they do, you have like Galois and you have um, those sorts of like really high end formal verification shops. And then you have, uh, like, you know, who do all of that, like hard, heavily specified sorts of, of consulting. Um, we're not there, you know, they do that sort of stuff, but we're, we're like 
a few steps below that sort of thing where we're doing, we can do the formal tasks, but we're also not concerned about getting it, like getting into a mobile application of like, you know, actual kernel that people use, not like a integrity or, or that sort of like, you know, um, EAL five plus sort of kernel, you know? So it's an interesting space because we, we mix, we're not, you know, not that Galois is not practical, but like they do very high end, very, very theoretical things. Um, but we're at that, it's like a happy balance for me where it's not too academic, uh, but it's just academic enough that it's, it's uh, very interesting. There's some really neat research and things that can be done so, at least for me until I'm fired. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's as long as it lasts for any of us, so it's all good. Yeah, is that why you're in your car? Is that the real reason? I, yes. I, I, I was just going to say I was convinced that you know I saw some red lights flashing that he just got pulled over and convinced the cop that he needed to do this podcast first before he gets hauled away. So I mean, know. yeah, you're not wrong, Seth, but. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, you're going to flip the camera around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, show him, show him yeah. You're in the backseat of a, of, a, of a trooper car. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, no. I was going to say, I mean, I don't think you can, I don't, you know, you never struck, struck me as the kind of guy that could do consulting that wasn't like more in depth. I mean, clearly your interests go far beyond um, what most folks I know uh, like tech interest wise, they go really deep and they're really like you, you are, you're all over the map on things that you're interested in and you're doing. Um, so having said that we talked the last time you were on about sort of crypto, um, cryptocurrencies and blockchain and oh, smart Lord. contracts and yeah, well, no, that, that, that was that episode. This, what I'm trying to get out of you is <laughs> clearly that's an area of kind of like the, uh, of something that people could focus on if they, you know, if they're, if they're looking to five to 10 years, you know, what, what, what's the next thing that, that they're going to get into? What else are you, are, you know, is there anything else? Like how do you see AppSec evolving and a new text, new tech that we're going to be tackling in, you know, we'll say the next, I don't know, five, I'll just throw out an arbitrary number. It's always five to 10 years, right? That's always what people throw out. Say that. I think we're going to see more advanced languages. I think we're going to see more. Uh, and, and when I say advanced languages, I don't mean languages that make things uh, necessarily simpler for programmers. In fact, they could be languages that make things more difficult in the short term um, as we get that user experience of, langu of like advanced languages down. Um, I do think formal verification, like it, so in the blockchain space, there's lots of people, like clients will continuously come to us and. Uh, and have a set of like mathematical properties about their code that they already proved out. So, and to have like backgrounds in formal verification, they have a formally specified or semi-formally specified uh, application, whatever the domain is. It could be blockchain, could be other spaces. Um, and you know, we're we're working with clients that are doing those sorts of things right now. The those are difficult. I think it's very, it's not inside the normal purview of a programmer. To, what are my pre and post conditions? What are the invariants that I'm looking at in my application? I think in the near term, those 
sorts of things will become much more uh, like understood by programmers. It's becoming more practical to do those sorts of like uh, more or semi-programming and what your application is doing uh, versus like several years ago to do formal verification in Java, you had like JML and you had uh, like some really expensive tools from Gramatech and that's it. Whereas now there's like all sorts of symbolic execution engines and like formal verifiers and all sorts of like proof engines that work directly with Java or work directly with C sharp or those sorts of things. So, so see more and more, especially the, the heavy things like Microsoft is working on MITLS for projects of formally verified uh, in FCA. A F sharp with uh, like refinement types and things like that. It's super interesting language. But, you broke up there uh, for a second. You're going so to see the. You, oh, I'm sorry. You, you kind of broke up. Would you say Microsoft? I heard Microsoft and F sharp. That's what I get out of that. Oh, so Microsoft is working on on MITLS, a, a version of TLS. Okay. Uh, that is proven to be secure. And it's in uh, it's in a language called F star. Hang on, I'll, I'll post it. Since okay, I see it actually. Out. Okay, I have just posted the links. I think yes, yeah, so, that's the same link. I think we're going to see those sorts of things, especially for core infrastructure like web servers, like TLS. They're going to see more and more of those things being at least semi-formally, if not formally proven correct. Did I lose your... <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I heard you. And in fact, there's a, there's a good um, question that came out of uh, what you were talking about there. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike McCabe, who was on last week, asked uh, if WebAssembly is the worst thing or the... <laughs> Wait, I thought he said... I thought it was gonna say worst or best thing ever. And it says worst thing or or dumbest thing ever. But uh, I guess a better question, the better way to phrase that is, what do you think of WebAssembly? <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Did we lose Stefan? WebAssembly? Yeah, are you a fan of WebAssembly or no? Uh, I'm here, yeah. Um, WebInc uh, is super interesting a lot about it and there are more proofs of WebAssembly. So there's a, a company called Runtime Verification. Uh, they have a, a tool called the K framework, which is a formal specification framework. They have a formal spec of uh, uh, web. You can actually prove that your WebAssembly VM semantics of the of the applications that you're executing. Um, so I don't think WebAssembly is thing ever. I just think think it's an. I'd like to see where people take it. I think it's cool, and they're doing stuff with it. So you know, 
Sweet. I mean, that, you make a super good point about the formal verification, right? I mean, from a security perspective, I don't think there's any better way to actually prove that you are secure, right? I mean, if we think of a compliance, like where we're at with compliance right now is pretty weak, or even the discussion that we had with Manico, right? If, you know, whatever, a couple of months ago, Ken, um, talking about, hey, eventually we're going to reach this kind of panacea of a, you know, web language and a web frameworks or these frameworks that are formally verified. I, you know, that's what he is pushing towards is, you know, we've got all this core infrastructure, we've got this code and we can mathematically prove that it is secure, right? It's, it only does what we intend it to do and nothing else. If we can get to that point, I think it's super interesting from a, you know, defense perspective on, Hey, you know, we know where the where the flaws exist and it's not in the core code itself. Right. I, I mean, I can I think about some of the assessments that you've done in the past against Rails apps and you know frameworks that people are using, um, you know, specifically around like e-commerce frameworks and things like that. You know, if the, if those had been verified before they were deployed, those vulnerabilities that we found as an as a consulting organization just wouldn't exist, right? Right. You're right. Yeah. And so I like, you know, that that's a really good point. I, like I haven't necessarily ever thought of it in that, in that sense, right. That the formal verification leads to security, which leads to kind of a baseline that we can be at before the developers customize their code or they customize the client environment. Uh, just because there is so much of that open source code that's out there that has never been formally verified in that same manner. So folks in our chat are, uh, there's a, a gentleman named Andres Bogagic, I, I can't pronounce his last name, um, but he gave a talk many years actually to like, oh wait, we can do this at the, and it's called the, he talks about is it, on in is your it, code, and that's yeah. that's the link there. Okay. Oh, the defense. Yeah, defense is not dead. That's the one that you're talking about, Stefan. You, mm -hmm. You're breaking up a little bit. I don't know if you're. I think no, your connection's it, getting worse as we're going on. I, the the cops are going through a dead spot. Is that what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh. That was good. Yeah, we'll we'll post it because yeah, that's why will we have yeah why we will have more secure computers tomorrow. Like I, I yeah, I need to think about that a little bit because I you know I I almost think that consulting should and compliance should be you know more interested in a formal specification and like exactly what you're doing. Definite uh, trail of bits than they should be in the OWASP top ten or something like that. I mean, at some point, OWASP top ten has to lead to some sort of a formal specification of security, right? Ooh, uh, that's its that, own whole conversation. That's it. It, it is, but uh, like I, I can see it going that direction, right? How do you codify that? How do you turn that into a formal compliance specification that you can hand off to other people? Um, and then, you know, as a consultant, how do I make money off that, right? Because it all comes back to money. That's what you were saying. Right? <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know if I'm breaking up, but we we do have basic sets of of properties that we test. Um, like if a if a certain type of if a certain type of currency. Oh, he is badly broken in. up. Tests that run or run again. Lost me. Yeah, we yeah we we, we did for a second. Maybe cut your video if you can. And we'll just I, do I audio. Did. All right, hang on. I mean, I'll do that completely. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, I was saying, I was saying that we we actually have baseline tests for certain for certain currencies that come in, so that if you are uh, like if you're implementing an ERC twenty token, um, we have a baseline test to know that okay, you at least are you know you're this, this tall to ride, you're this tall to be a currency. And then we start to look more in depth at what you're doing around that currency and around those sorts of like handling procedures and things like that. Um, if you have any custom code there and those sorts of things. So we're already heading in that direction. And I, that's where I'm seeing others, other players in the market moving. And I, I won't be surprised to see that sort of direction being taken, taken hold uh, across the industry uh, just you know, in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I, I mean, it makes complete sense that, you know, uh, not only like PCI compliance and, you know, what they've already done to move that direction, but even like banking and governmental compliance to be like, hey, guess what? It's no longer good to say that you did these things and you did a scan. We want a formal report that actually says you are, you know, you are this tall, because if you're not, then we're not going to certify you and no one's going to use you as a as a provider. You know, the I was going to actually mention on the PCI and what, you know, like what what's all in scope and whatnot. Like um, this came up recently that, you know, how like it used to be if you used a like Stripe or Braintree or something and you were, you know, doing that via like their button or doing like an iframe or whatever, like it was pretty much out of scope, right? For PCI, like that app is now out of scope because it's not taking, it's not taking credit card information directly. PCI got wise to that, and now that is in scope still to a degree. So, like, don't know if anyone knew that, but that was new to me. That's a recent uh, development to me. I don't know how long that's actually been a thing, but, yeah. Well, yeah, anytime you handle that plain text card number, right, even though if it is in a, you know, if it hap- if it could end up in your environment anyway, right, so... Yeah, that's kind of getting off topic a little bit. But, you know, if you from a PCI perspective, like Braintree and some of those other providers actually have like the encryption modules now that will encrypt in the browser and then send it down so that the pan will never end up on your or in your environment. So you can stay out of scope for PCI. Right. Uh, But you have to implement it properly in order for that to be the case. So anyway, is it all like FPE or is it? of encryption or i mean that's totally out of scope but <laughs> yeah i like as i understand it it's it's like a, a pp pki uh module like javascript module that you load up and as you type the card number in it's all done in javascript they use the pki to actually encrypt before it's sent so the only thing that your browser or uh, sorry not your browser but your uh server is going to see is that encrypted blob that you don't have the decryption key to actually decrypt, right? 
Yeah, like it's not. I mean, it's it's fairly. I mean, it, it's not really like. It's not a huge. I don't. I don't know why that's in scope now. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like I don't. I. I don't. It's always been done well. Uh, I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot if I say that. The the instances where I've seen stripe or brain tree used, it's been pretty secure. Like it's. I mean, certainly more secure than rolling your own uh, payment system. Um, so I don't know. It just seems odd. Um, but you know, I'm not sure what what's what spurred that. I mean probably something to do with money since we're talking about money and security. I'm sure it has something to do with that, but yeah, they got wise I mean, to it. There's like F five has a uh, tokenization, which is usually like format preserving encryption uh, sort of module. Like there's, there's quite a few people working in the, the format preserving encryption space. Now IBM actually has like database structures that you can literally avoid having unencrypted data anywhere, but you can continue to interact with the data as if it were unencrypted because it's all format preserving encryption. Which is super interesting. So I'm trying to think of the provider that initially brought that to my attention. I can't remember. It was one of those that was doing something similar, right? That it was like, hey, we're going to encrypt this but it's going to maintain like not only like the credit card number, but in like long format as well, but the, it's going to be encrypted unless you have the decryption key, you're never going to get back. And I, that, that's a very interesting space. I, like that's a whole nother discussion we probably need to have at some point um, because yeah, I, but, but, but it is interesting to actually think about the, the verification standard around that. Right. How, like what what happens when that like encrypted format is actually the same as like a valid credit card number somebody else's valid credit card number um, is there a way that they're actually proving that out um, it seems like there's a lot of other security implications that come along with that but. well that was one of the one of the viewers mike uh, weaver had mentioned uh it's probably in scope to help fix bad implementations i totally agree i i I just haven't, I mean, I haven't personally run across like too many bad implementations. Maybe I'm just lucky or crappy at reviewing now. I mean, I, I, I think it's just, I haven't like seen it terribly implemented anywhere, but I think that that there's definitely room for that. I agree. Um, Oh, there was another comment about uh, if you're using point to point encryption between the reader and the processor, along with data tokenization, your scope is significantly reduced. Yeah. So, but I thought that's how it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought that's just sort of like how Braintree worked, though. But, um, well, I think it was the the tokenization on the client rather than like yeah. they push that all the way to the client rather than being on the server itself. So, right. like, th there was always the case where they they enter the card slightly wrong or whatever, and it actually ends up hitting the log files or something like that, right? Um, so trying to take that all out of scope and all out of the hands of the the store that's processing the credit card rather than Braintree itself. So, right. But, no, I'm Captain. I'm Captain Mist, but Mist Mist has uh, S, like 838G, which is uh, all the FPE modes that Mist recommends. Super interesting space if you're interested in encryption and tokenization. So that's. Yeah, I just actually pulled that up. That's interesting. 
Dang it. I always have like a reading list when we get done talking to you, Stefan. You talk to Stefan for five <laughs> minutes and wind up with a reading list. I'm reposting. Sweet. I tried to like, I I tried to keep it short this time too. I wasn't even like when you asked me about books, I was like, no, I only have two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, we see where we that went, right? Yeah. Yeah. That worked really oh, well. Man. I tried to, I tried. We've been going for a while too. We probably. Yeah. We're, we're, we're about at the time that we probably want to wrap things up, but um Stefan, as always, it's a, it's it's super interesting to get together and chat these topics. I, I mean, obviously, we we chat all the time uh, as far as like, uh, Slack and other things, but it's always good to have you on, and we appreciate you being you know a, a willing participant of the podcast, even when you are in a in the back of a, a cop car. You know, however, that needs I mean, to happen. You know, it's fine. Just uh, you know, please send any bail requests to uh, <laughs> like <laughs> get me out of here. We're going yeah, to have yeah. to, we're going to have to crowdfund your bail money. Yeah. We're going to have to post bail somehow. Right. It truly but, is a magical uh, holiday. Oh gosh. And I'm sure it won't be one of those things where they let me sit in the drunk tank for the entire, the entirety of like, you know, Thanksgiving, black Friday and that weekend too. So it'll be fine. <laughs> It'll be fine. You don't have to go back to work until Monday, right? That's fine. Yeah, exactly. It'll be fine. No one will notice. <laughs> no one will notice. <laughs> ah, Sweet. Well, um, you know, on other fronts, I'm still waiting on our, like the t-shirts to show up. Stefan, I know I owe you that, and I'm going to dump some other stuff in there that I owe you as well when we, we send that out. Um, oh, that'd be awesome. But uh, besides that, you know, Ken and I will be at AppSec Cali. Uh, Stefan, any other conferences that you're going to in the near future where people could interact with you? Uh, so I was just at B-Sides Charleston. Um, I ran the crypto CTF at B-Sides Charleston. Um, I don't have any on the, ca- on the calendar, but I, I actually went to AppSec Cali. Um, I thought that would be a lot of fun. Um, probably New York conferences like besides New York is, is in January. I'm going to unallocate, I'm speaking at unallocated space. Uh, there's a mini conference in January. I'm speaking my talk is called how to fuck literally anything. Um, <laughs> it's on fuzzing and symbolic execution and things like that. So, um, this is definitely an explicit podcast today. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> geez, you just went over our limit. Way to go, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> but and this is yeah, Stefan so being I, tame. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to keep it wrapped up. Um but yeah, I'll be at a bunch of conferences. Um I'm trying to shoot for more local stuff as I also want to go to like Hack Lou and Appsec Cali and a few other places. So Cool. Well, yeah, I, I mean, if no one is following uh, Stefan on Twitter, make sure and do that. You can interact with him there or you can join us on the Absolute AppSec Slack channel. Um, we're always available there. If you've got other questions for him, you know, want to know about any of those esoteric languages that he's built, that's a good place to hit him up. Uh, but otherwise, you know, come out to AppSec Cali with me and Ken uh, if you're interested in the or like our how to and code review. Possibly Stefan. And possibly Stefan and uh, like Mike or others that have been on the on the show. It's going to be a regular kind of meetup for everybody that 
we we know, right, Ken? Yep, basically, it's going to be a lot of people, bunch of bunch of cool folks that are really super nice and know what they're talking about, uh, and then us, and then yeah. us, and <laughs> maybe we'll do a podcast out there, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. It'd be fun. Maybe. Yeah. See how many people we can get on the show in the course of an hour. And drunk. I'm looking at the shipping information for those t-shirts and uh, it doesn't seem like any movements occurred on the tracking there. I see we got a tracking number, but I don't actually see anything. So it's coming from Reno and it's going to arrive to your place in Utah. So fairly soon within a month i'd say we should be able to have some have some of those t-shirts mailed out to some of the folks that uh including yourself stefan um Yay. who have joined us so you know well when the hand cart gets here i'll i'll let you know and we'll figure out a way to give them out as maybe like i don't know yeah. prize or something i don't know whatever we'll figure out a way yeah maybe we'll have stefan design us a nice little like you know crypto ctf for absolute optic right that'd be fun yeah, could do something. I like could that. run another language one. There you go. See, see, That's <laughs> there, there, there's so many options. Um, well, thanks everybody for joining us tonight. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Ken, as usual. Um, join us next week. I think uh, I'm not even sure. I haven't even looked at the schedule who we've got on next week. Um, Matt Conda, as a matter of fact. Awesome. Matt's going to be great. Matt's one of the OWASP. I think he's a board member right now, correct? Yep, yep. We we did have a we did have to move some dates around, uh, but uh, yeah, we've got Matt Conda next week and um, Sean Porras, who runs the uh, team over at uh, I want to Oath, um, Oath. Yahoo and uh, AOL um, Synergies, and then uh, Will. I said Synergies. Will from uh, Will Bankston from uh, Netflix. Um, and Leif uh, and David from Segment, who um, are, are at AppSec Cali, helping to organize AppSec Cali. Uh, so we got some great, I mean, we got some good ghosts, uh, good, good guests coming up. Yeah, so don't, you know, don't take tonight's show as, you know, as standard, because, you know. <laughs> so we, we had Stefan on, right, you know, and like Ken's wearing a, I don't know, whatever you're, it is you're wearing over there. At some point, you're going to show up in a mankini, I'm pretty sure. So This is my troll my cat and my I love Stefan sweater. Awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, you know, Feel free to hit us up, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks again, Stefan. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye. bye.